Well, good morning, South Valley Community Church. Today, we start a new series going through the book of Job, entitled The Voice in the Whirlwind, Doubt, Suffering, and the Wisdom of Job. Now, opening statement, Job is one of the most mysterious and puzzling books in the entire Bible. It is wrestling with some of the most deepest questions that human beings ask. It addresses our deepest longings and hurts and pains. It wrestles with questions like, is God good? Is God fair? Is the universe fair? Are those who are good rewarded? Are those who are bad punished? And it deals with that through the genre of something called wisdom literature. And to the people of Israel, the book of Job is like the zenith of human wisdom. Technically, the book is a theodicy, and theodicy is a technical term that deals with our understanding of how two things can exist at the same time. Those two things being suffering and evil in the world, but also the claim that God is good, especially all of the time. So theodicies wrestle with evil and suffering in the midst of the claim that God is good all of the time. And that's what this book does, but it does so in a profound way because we come to the book of Job wanting answers to certain questions like why do good people suffer? And the book of Job invites us into wrestle with that, but rather than answering the questions that we want answer, it sort of avoids those and gives us the answers that it thinks we need. In other words, God through this book may not answer the questions that we want answered, but he gives us the answers that he knows we need. So with that said, let's dig in. Job chapter 1 verse 1. Now there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. Okay, this is interesting. We get introduced to the character of Job, to the person of Job, but there's tons of details that are missing. We don't know the time period exactly. We don't know the author of this book. And so it's almost as if the writer of this book is wanting us to pay attention to the theological questions that the book is wrestling with. We don't get swamped in a bunch of historical details as many of the other books of the Bible do. Additionally, Job is a man who does not have a Jewish name and is not in Israel which is a way of the book already surprising our assumptions because we know Joe is blameless and upright. He is a good man. And if you're reading Jewish literature and you're being introduced to a character who is blameless before God, you expect him to be Jewish and living in Israel, maybe Jerusalem to be specific. Maybe he works in the temple. But this blameless and upright man is not of Jewish descent and he's not in Israel, which is a way, again, it's sort of tweaking with our assumptions about blamelessness and righteousness. Now, it says that he's this great man, and he's got seven sons and three daughters. So he's a good dude with a great big family, but it goes on and tells us some more information about him. It says, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. 
So Job's got it all. He's a good guy. He's upright. He's blameless. And he has an incredibly blessed life. Now, some of those numbers are hard to understand. And we're not ancient people. So when we see like, well, how much is 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels? Like, how much is that? It's a lot. It's like the, the most rich dude in the entire area. It's like this guy doesn't just have a nice car. He's got a whole garage full of nice cars, man. He already got an advanced copy of PlayStation 5, giant backyard with the, with the blush guard. I mean, he's got everything his dreams could ever aspire to. He has it all. And he's a good man. He's a good man. This is where the, the plot develops. Job 1.6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Okay, this is a creepy section in the Bible. You are supposed to picture the throne room of God and picture God sitting on his throne and then he's surrounded by these beings that are called the sons of God in Hebrew, Beni Elohim. And this is difficult because when we hear the phrase son of God, if you're a Christian, first and foremost, you think of Jesus. And then if you don't think of Jesus, you might think of, well, who are the, the sons of, of God? Well, we're all adopted into the family of God. So sons and daughters of God, that's like, like us when we're brought into the family of God. But that's not what, what's going on in Job. In Job and several other places of scripture, there's a throne room scene depicted. And in it is God, and he's surrounded by this heavenly council, these spiritual beings who are granted some type of authority. <clears throat> now, we don't know all the details of how it works, but there appears to be angels or some type of spiritual beings that are in the throne room of God that God grants authority to. And while this scene is going on, one of these spiritual beings named the Satan approaches the throne room of God. Now, if you caught my words there, I said the Satan. In English, it's often translated Satan. But in Hebrew, Hashatan, it's literally a title or a vocation, not a name. So in English, we get the name Satan, like there's this, this bad angel and his name is Satan. But in Hebrew, what you're supposed to think about is this spiritual being who approaches the throne of God and he is known as the accuser or the adversary or the challenger. He is one who enters the heavenly throne room and brings accusations. It's very mysterious. I mean, a lot of this stuff is worked out later in the Bible and the New Testament, but the book of Job is written very early. And so we just get this scene of the accuser approaching God. And God responds and he's like, man, my man Job, that's a good man. That is a good man. Job, I've blessed him, but he is a, a righteous dude. He is blameless before me. And then the massive twist in the plot. Satan brings the accusation or the accuser brings the accusation. 
You have blessed the work of his hands, yes, and his possessions have increased in the land, yes, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. In other words, the Satan says, Job is obedient because you bless him for his obedience, which is a profound question that has philosophical and psychological implications. Because at the heart of the question is this, do you obey God because you actually love him? Do you obey God because you actually love him? Or do you obey to get something from him? I mean, this strikes at, at, at the core of who we are as human beings. Why do we do what we do? What is it deep, deep down in us that motivates us to behave the way we do? Is it actually something good? Or is it possible that even our most righteous deeds are motivated by something evil down there? And that's the test. Satan goes, he only obeys because he receives blessing. He only obeys. He, 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 he doesn't really love you. If you take all that away, God, he will curse you. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Job, you, you know that Satan is going to strike Job, at Job and take away everything. All the camels are going to die. All the, the oxen are going to die. Job's children are going to die. All of his fi financial, uh, his fortune, it's going to collapse. Everything is going to come undone. And the question will be, will Job bless or curse? He's going to lose it all. Now think about this. Have you ever, maybe you didn't specifically utter the words like, I curse you, Lord. But have you ever been angry at God because you didn't get something that you wanted? Like seriously, have you ever, have you ever been angry at God because of the car you drive? Like you want, you want a better car. It's like, oh God, you know, I'm tired of driving this. Ain't got no air conditioning, man. And so-and-so has this nice one. And you're literally like finding yourself angry at God because you don't like your car or your house or something. Some of you are going like, yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've been angry at God over cheap stuff like that. And some of you are like, oh no, I, I, I've never been angry at God for what I've had. Here's the thing though. You have to probe deep. You have to probe deep into your heart because you might have, you, you may have never specifically curse God over a situation circumstance in your life. But have you ever been envious of what someone else had? Have you ever been jealous of what someone else has had? Have you ever thought in your heart, I should have what they have. I deserve that and they don't. That should be mine. Now probe that same question, that same sentiment, that same emotion, go deeper with it. When you say, I deserve this and this person doesn't, deep in that is the accusation that the universe is not functioning properly. If the universe was doing what it should be doing, I would have this and they wouldn't. And if you go deeper in that question, and if you think the universe is not operating as it ought to, behind that is an accusation that the one running the universe may not be running it the way it should be which deep down is a question about the goodness of God. 
is God running the world rightly? And that's what Job is trying to get us to do, to wrestle with those deep things. And you got to be careful because some of us will never explicitly say that out loud. Like, I can't believe God runs the universe like this. But when jealousy and envy and bitterness creep in, you go down deep enough, oftentimes there's a foundation that is an accusation against God himself. So the test for Job will be, how will he respond to all of this when he loses everything? Job loses his fortune his children die, the animals are taken away. And it says in Job 1.20, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I come from my mother's room and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What a profound and remarkable statement. Job loses everything in this story. His children, his fortune, the flocks. Satan comes and wreaks havoc on all of that. And what is Job's response? He's in lament, he's in agony, but he doesn't bring an accusation against God. He said, look, Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be his name. And then, he's, then it says, in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God, charge God with wrong. Doesn't charge God with wrong. Now, you know if that was like me or you, we'd have a charge or an accusation against God, right? Which is, which is incredibly interesting because who's the one who brings accusations in this story? Who's the, who's the accuser? And it's so interesting how quickly we ourselves can embody the accuser. But Job at this point in the story will not bring a charge against God. He says, I don't, I don't have it all figured out. I don't know why, but I'm not going to do it. It's fascinating that the conversation between God and the Satan takes place in the heavenly realm. So as readers of the story, we're brought inside and we know the inner dynamics that are work going on. But Job doesn't know any of that. He has no clue. He has no clue. In this moment, all he could do is weep, lament, and try his best to trust in the goodness of God. Unfortunately, Satan goes back to God and is like, this isn't enough. I, yeah, I took away um, the children, the animals, and all this, but it's still not enough. Uh, let me inflict more upon Job. And in the story, this is exactly what happens. When you think it can't get any worse, it says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Okay, there's an image that this book is trying to give you. And there's textual clues and hints spread throughout, and some of it you got to know some of the historical details, but there's a specific image. Job has lost everything. He now has a skin disease that we don't know exactly what it was, but he, he's taking 
pieces of, of pottery and scraping sores off of his flesh. If he had that type of skin condition, he would have been outcast outside of the town or the village. The clues in the text say that he's near a dunghill. And the dunghill was a place that they would have burned the dung. There would have been plenty of ashes there. And so there's little, context, there's little textual clues in the passage. But essentially, the literature is wanting you to picture a man who has lost everything. And now his body is filled with sores and he's scraping them off. And he's filled with ashes that are made from animal dung. So it's an image that can't get any lower. This is the most miserable condition someone could be in. It is worse than rock bottom. And just as you think, like, it, it, it can't get any worse, Job 2, 9 through 10, then his wife comes to him and she says to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we, shall we receive good from God? Shall we not also receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. You lose everything. Your body's failing. You're in ashes from a dunghill. And then your wife's just like, call it a day, man. Curse God and die. But what do we know about Job? Job is saying, I'm not doing that. He's not going to do that. And the text ends this section by saying, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, this sets up the rest of the book. And it, it sets in motion all of the tension that we feel in our hearts. Like, God, why would you allow this? Why is Satan getting away with this? And why is it happening to Job? He's a great guy. Aren't, couldn't, couldn't you do these, these things to people who deserve it? Like all of these things are going on. And the book is invoking those emotions and it's building that tension. And as we go forward, we're gonna see in the coming weeks, Job has some friends come and they all try to explain Job's suffering. You're suffering because of this or you're suffering because of that or you're suffering because of this. All the while, Job maintains his innocence. And the book is this deep, deep philosophical wrestling with all of these issues. And I can tell you in advance, it does not answer the questions that we would want to be answered. But I'm convinced it gives you the answers that God thinks we as human beings need. Job in ancient Israel was considered the zenith of human wisdom. And so as we travel through this, the book invites us to bring all of those concerns and see how they work out in conversation between Job, his friends, and ultimately in the voice of God himself. Now, there's something in here that teaches us to, to, to trust like a child. And this is where the story that's going on with Job parallels some of the experiences we are having. Now, none of us are suffering like Job is. I mean, Job loses everything and the worst possible thing after the worst possible thing happens to him like all in the same instance. We have different levels of, 
of suffering and some people who aren't in, in, in a bad moment in life. And we have some of you who are suffering immensely. It's all across the board right now. However, there is a parallel theme here. Job has no idea what tomorrow brings. All he knows is that the present circumstance is not good. And right now, collectively, as a people, we have no idea what, what the future holds. Like, there's all these experts that'll talk about what life will look like in a post-COVID-19 world. And we could have, we can hypothesize and we can talk about, I like doing that stuff. These are some of the implications for the future. But no one really, no, no one knows. And even more than that, no one ever knows what tomorrow brings. Did you think when 2020 hit, there would be a global lockdown? You didn't predict that. And so Job reminds us that nobody knows what tomorrow brings. And it says the answer to that is to trust the goodness of God in the moment. Trust God's goodness today and take his hand and let you lead let him lead for tomorrow. You're not going to have it all figured out. Tomorrow could be a good day. It could be a bad day. But you want to trust in his goodness. And Job is clinging to that. He's refusing to bring an accusation against God. Now, the reason why this is trusting like a child is because um, children do this. If, you, if you're a parent of a young child, that's my life face. So I have little kids. Um, my kids are like when they're worrying about, worried about something, it's, it's right then and there. They're not thinking about what's going to happen in 10 years from now, five years from now. And the answer for them to relieve that sort of worry or fear is to trust mom or dad in that very moment. So one of the things I've mentioned before that I love doing, uh, and my son, my, my first son is about to get out of this phase and my, my, my other one is about to get into this phase. So I'm looking forward to it. But, um, My son, um, like, when he was a little bit younger, used to like to try and jump off things that, that if I didn't catch him, he would get hurt. You know, where it's like you climb up on a counter and you're like, catch me, dad, catch me, dad. And they're smiling and they have a, like a cute smile on their face and they're laughing. But simultaneously, they're kind of they're scared. Like, catch me, dad, I'm going to jump. And my son was always so cute because like his, his legs would would kind of, kind of shake and I could hear it in his voice. He was, he was trying to trust me and it was difficult. He wanted to jump and I would just have to say, I'll catch you, I'll catch you, just jump. And the more my son would do that with me, the less he would be afraid and the more he would trust that. When I jump to my dad, I'm, he's gonna catch me. He's gonna catch me. And that is essentially what we must learn to do as Christians. I mean, Jesus tells us, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, you got to come like children. And he's not saying like you have to reduce your, your intellect down to be a child and just believe foolish things. No, he's saying you got to learn to trust your good heavenly father. And right now, as a people and a culture and as a local church, we need to A, trust in the goodness of our father and B, allow him to lead us. And that's a day-by-day, step-by-step thing. So 
We're going to be diving in the rest of this book. It's going to be deep. The book of Job is, it's wisdom literature. It's filled with like the pinnacle of human wisdom and understanding. There's going to be ups and downs and a lot of other stuff in between. So stick with us. And before we transition to service, the rest of the service, I want to bring up one other interesting parallel. Job is an innocent man suffering by the work of the accuser. And for the rest of the book of Job, the innocent man who is suffering from the works of the accuser will wait for God to vindicate him. Does that sound familiar? An innocent man who suffers and waits for the father to vindicate. See, in a sense, like everything in the Bible, it's always pointing to something greater. And we know that Jesus is the truly innocent one, the truly innocent one who suffers on our behalf and the world found him guilty. And for three days, he lays in the grave, condemned by the world, condemned by the accuser. But on the third day, the father vindicates his son and raises him up in power and glory. And it's to Jesus whom now we follow and we trust. And so may you trust and follow your Lord this day. Let me pray and then we will stand as we read the Lord's Prayer. Father God, um, when the world goes to, when the world becomes a place where we see so much hurt and pain, it it could be difficult to trust in your your goodness, Lord, but we want to follow you want to love you, we want to serve you, and we want to trust in your goodness. And so help us be a people and a church that say, in good times and bad times, blessed be the name of the Lord. Help us to remain faithful because you are first and foremost faithful to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.